Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles in hand and open once again to Luke chapter 13, Gospel of Luke chapter 13, our text this morning, verses 31 through 35. And we'll conclude, Lord willing, the 13th chapter today. If you've been uh, paying a little bit of attention to the news cycle, you almost certainly have noticed through the last years some changes in the way that our culture relates to Christians and to the Lord's church. I recently visited a church plant in New England that is situated in a beautiful river valley and uh, at one time was part of the heart of what historians call the Great Awakening. Prior to the 13 colonies winning their independence, there was a great movement of God in which thousands were saved and churches were started and expanded and there was a cultural awareness of the presence of God. Unfortunately, today New England is second only to Utah in degree of lostness here in America. There is in many cases an open hostility against evangelical Christianity as evidenced by the fact that the church plant that I mentioned earlier has been repeatedly denied a simple building permit because the town fathers simply don't want a church in their town. Living here where there is an evangelical church at nearly every intersection, we might find this hard to believe, but I assure you it is reality. And I believe that unless there is another awakening, another revival in our nation, we will experience at some point that same hostility, not just in New England, but all over our great land. Jesus predicted that those who would follow him closely would in fact experience the same treatment that he did. He said that a servant is not greater than his master. And if that's the case, and it is, we need to be well versed on how Jesus was treated. Well, we know ultimately that he was murdered. He was crucified like a common criminal. But persecution rarely begins with murder. It sometimes ends there, but it doesn't start there. It starts with hostility expressed in verbal threats and intimidation. And that is what is happening here in the last pericope of Luke 13. Let's read the text. Luke 13, beginning in verse 31. Just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to him, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. May the Lord add his blessing, the reading and hearing of his word. Now this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees begins with a suspicious threat. Look at verse 31. Just at that time, some Pharisees approached saying to him, go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. 
Now, why do I say this is a suspicious threat? It's certainly a threat when someone says, go away, someone wants you dead. But I say it's suspicious because it's coming from the Pharisees who never had Jesus' best interest at heart, but here they are feigning as if they do. If you'll just turn back a few um, pages in the Gospel of Luke, you'll come to chapter 11. You remember that this whole section of Scripture started with Jesus' acceptance of a lunch invitation to the home of one of these Pharisees in which he blasted them for their religious hypocrisy. And the result of that was from that point on, they sought how to do away with him. Look at verse 53, chapter 11. When he left there, that is that house, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects. And so suddenly here we have him, some weeks removed, and they're trying to warn him and to save his life. That's suspicious to me. Now they certainly didn't have any love for Herod, that is the Pharisees. He was after all a puppet ruler put in place by the Romans. He was not Jewish and he was living in gross immorality. But this threat was indirect. Herod didn't send it himself. They were speaking for Herod. Now Jesus at this time is likely in a region called Perea or Galilee, which was the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas, both of those regions. Uh, and so they were speaking truth in one sense that Herod was a dangerous figure. This sounds like something he would do. After all, this was the evil man who had put John the Baptist to death. His father, Herod the Great, had tried to kill Jesus in his infancy. That's why Jesus and his parents had to flee to Egypt. However, given the whole of the New Testament, it is unlikely to me that this threat came from Herod. Because when Jesus did ultimately stand before Herod during his sham trial leading to his crucifixion, Herod wanted nothing to do with him. He could have put him to death right then and there, but he sent him back to Pilate. Herod was after all a politician and he didn't want this mark on his record. My personal feeling is that the Pharisees were just trying to give Jesus an opportunity to leave. They wanted him out of their jurisdiction. At least they wanted him to be intimidated into being quiet. This of course failed and so they ultimately killed him. So as we think about as servants of the Lord Jesus and his teaching that we could face the same types of things that he did, how can we be prepared for the same treatment of our Lord? Well, we need to look at how Christ responded to intimidation. In fact, that is the title of today's message, the Christian response to intimidation. You know the word Christian simply means like Christ. So as his disciples, we want to respond to intimidation the same way he did. Well, first and foremost, his response was always a bold response. Look at verse 32. After they had said, Herod's trying to kill you, he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I reached my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. So they're trying to dictate to him his agenda. And he says, you've given me a command to leave and be quiet. You go tell Herod to do something. It's very telling to me that Jesus did not say when they said, get out of here, Herod's trying to kill you. Oh, thanks for the heads up. Thanks for the warning. I owe you one. He didn't say any of that. He knew their wicked hearts. His response was bold. He gives them a command, you go and tell that fox. 
Now, Jesus here is speaking as a prophet. We know that Jesus was a prophet, a priest, and a king. And here he's preaching, he's preaching prophetically. God often in the Old Testament sent his prophets to speak truth to powerful leaders who were in sin. Moses, for example, was sent to Pharaoh, likely the most powerful politician in the world at that time, and he gave him a command through Moses to let my people go. Elijah went to Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel and said, tear down the altars of Baal. And he was called by them a troubler of Israel. Nathan said to David, the king of Israel, of his adultery with Bathsheba, thou art the man. John the Baptist went to this same Herod and said, repent for the sin of adultery. We preachers don't need to be so cozy with the powers that be that we can't speak prophetically when sin needs to be addressed. And Jesus spoke directly, calling Herod a fox. Now this was not a compliment. Foxes are cunning, but ultimately they are dangerous and worthless to society. What Jesus wants the Pharisees to know is that they, nor Herod, will dictate the plan of God. He said, because I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day, I reach my goal. Now what ultimately was his goal, his mission, was to die on the cross. And when he said that I'm going to do that today and tomorrow and the third day, he was saying, I will not be hindered by your warnings. I am going to complete the mission that my heavenly Father has given me. Jesus was, in fact, carrying out the mission that the Father had given him, and it was not yet time for him to die. But when that time came, and it would not be very long, he would dictate the outcome. Not the Pharisees, not the Romans, not Herod. And that's why he says, today and tomorrow and the next day, that's a Middle Eastern way of saying, not until my mission is accomplished. Now, I'm going to say something to you that I say every Easter and that is this, as we start looking towards the cross, as we start watching movies about the passion of the Christ, as we start reading about the suffering of our Savior, we need to be very, very careful. Please, please, please don't ever think of Jesus as a pathetic victim. He is not. Here we hear him telling the most powerful people in the land, the religious powers that be, the Pharisees, and the political power that is, Herod, that they are not in charge of him. He is bold in his declaration of his sovereignty. So if we, his disciples, are to respond in like way to intimidation, we also must be bold, even if that means our incarceration. We are told to obey the government. We are told to pray for our rulers, kings and governors, and all that have authority over us. But there is a caveat to that. When they demand of us things that violate the direct commandments of the Lord, the Lord obviously is to be obeyed. Quite soon after Jesus ascended back into heaven, two of his disciples, Peter and John, went down to the temple to pray as recorded in Acts chapter 4. You remember they came in contact right away with a, a man who was lame. And he held out his hands. He was a beggar. And he asked of them alms, money. And Peter says, silver and gold have we none. 
such as we have we given to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And this man was miraculously healed. And everyone there knew him, had seen him there year after year. And so it drew a crowd. And Peter and John were not about to let that opportunity go. So they started preaching the gospel. And that really made the leaders of the temple, who were the Sadducees, also enemies of Christ. And we'll look back in Acts chapter 4. And what really made them mad was not that they healed this man. Here's what made them angry. It says, they were greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They were preaching the gospel and they were arrested for it and they were brought before the temple rulers and they knew they had to silence Peter and John. And so here's what they did. Listen to Acts 4.13. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John, that's boldness, and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Would the world recognize us as having been with Jesus? And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. That is, they knew this was a miracle. They could not deny that. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. We can't deny it. And so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name, that is the name of Jesus. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That is, they tried to intimidate them. Don't you preach anymore the name of Jesus or it'll go bad for you. And here's the bold response, verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Amen. They would not be intimidated. They were just like Jesus in that regard. Finally, Jesus' bold response was seasoned with a compassionate plea. And some of you are thinking, well, it doesn't sound like Jesus to be so forceful. Well, it does sound like the Jesus of the Bible if you've been paying attention the last few Sundays. But don't ever think about Jesus as this harsh dictator who rejoices in putting his heel on the neck of his enemies, causing them as much pain as possible. So these very men who want to see him dead, this is his response to them. Look at verse 34, back in Luke 13. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Now he's speaking Jerusalem being the capital city, but I think he's talking about all of his Jewish brethren. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not have it. Now here in these few verses that we've read this morning, I believe we have a distillation of the tension that we see throughout the Bible between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We know here and we teach here that the scripture says that if a person is saved, it is owing to the fact that God chose to show that person mercy and to open their blind eyes by his spirit and extend a gift of grace to a sinful rebel. 
The scripture says, in while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were dead, Paul says, in trespasses and sins. But at the same time, as we know that if a person is to be saved, God has to save them. We read verses like the one I just read that indicate that God offers an invitation for those sinners to avoid his judgment. And incidentally, that has always been the case. There's a misunderstanding that I hear perpetuated from time to time that the God of the Old Testament is fundamentally different than the God of the New Testament. In fact, it wasn't that long ago that a very influential evangelical pastor encouraged the rest of us pastors to unhitch from the Old Testament because he said the modern person is offended by the God of the Old Testament, the God who punishes, the God who sends a flood that destroys the earth, the God who swallows men whole from the ground who rebel against him. But friends, that's the God of the Bible. We dare not unhitch from that because the Bible says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Which means if he's a God who judges sin in the Old Testament, he's also a God who judges sin in the New Testament. But that also means if he's compassionate in the New Testament, he's always been compassionate. And that is the case. Listen to Ezekiel 33:11, an Old Testament passage. This is what God says to a wicked nation. As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? And that's almost exactly what Jesus is saying in the New Testament. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to you, how many times I would have gathered you as a mother hen does her brood, but you would not have it. So how do we harmonize those seemingly mutually exclusive truths that God chooses those who will be saved and yet he holds man responsible if he rejects that offer and that invitation? How do we harmonize those two? I don't know. I don't know. I know this, the Bible doesn't try to harmonize the two. The Bible simply declares both of them as fact. And I know this, though I don't understand it, the Lord does. And this is what the scripture teaches. And what the scripture teaches is that there has always been a remnant of faithful people. There's always been a remnant of faithful Jewish people, even in Jesus' day, though by and large, Jerusalem and the nation rejected him as their Messiah. There were a few, a faithful few who believed and were saved. So here is Jesus, a Jewish man, brokenhearted, compassionate, even though he knew their wicked heart that they wanted to do away with him, rather than returning insult for insult, rather than striking them all dead, as he certainly had the power to do, he offers this invitation. A mother hen who is compassionate to her chicks come and come under the shelter of my protection. They would not. And so what is the result of that? Verse 35. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me 
until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Your house, the Greek is ho oikos. He's speaking here of the temple. He is predicting here what he does in a number of places in New Testament, the destruction of the temple. We know that when Jesus died on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, signifying the fact there was no longer any need for the sacrificial system. But the temple, he predicted, would be destroyed, not one stone left upon another. And we know that just a few years after his death in 70 AD, that's exactly what happened. So Jesus says, you won't see me again. That is after his crucifixion, his, his ascension, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now remember, he's talking to Jewish people. So those of you who know a little bit about the Bible would probably say, well, he's speaking there of his triumphal entry that we're going to celebrate here in just a few days. Remember where he came into Jerusalem on the fold of a donkey and the people cut down palm branches and laid them in his path and began to sing Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that seems to make sense, except if you go to the Gospel of Matthew, you will find Jesus making the same prophecy after his triumphal entry. So he certainly there could not be speaking of his triumphal entry. And so it has to mean something else. So remember, he's, he's talking to his fellow Jews. What could he mean? He seems to be indicating that there will come a day in human history where Jewish people writ large will, in fact, recognize him as the Messiah. And that's what the scripture says will happen. Look at Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. You know, we studied here on Wednesday evenings for several years through this great book of Romans. It is the treatise of justification by faith. But it was written, of course, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, who was also a Jewish man. And he had great compassion for his countrymen as well. And so as he talked about the new covenant, he knew that some people would, would hear wrongly that God is done with Israel. Maybe you've been taught that, what's called replacement theology, that God has cast Israel aside ultimately and has replaced them with the church made up primarily of Gentiles. That's not what Paul said. Look at chapter 11, verse 1 of Romans. Paul says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? He's talking about Israel. May it never be. That is the strongest negative phrase in the Greek language. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know about the scripture that says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel. And so for this entire chapter 11, Paul is explaining that in God's sovereignty, that he's allowed a period of time for the Gentiles to be gathered in. Now, most of us here, I would guess, are Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And in fact, most of the church today are Gentiles. Paul says here in Romans 11 that we are wild olive shoots that have been grafted into this great tree, this covenant promise that he made with Israel. And so the question again is, has God ultimately cast aside Israel? Well, you ask again, look at verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. 
And the idea is that there's going to be a period of time that's unspecified in length. It's gone now for 2,000 years in which the vast majority of Jewish people continue to reject their Messiah. But ultimately, there's going to be a great awakening among Jewish people that they are going to ultimately recognize their Messiah. Look at verse 23, speaking of them. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches that who receive the original covenant promises be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and so all Israel will be saved. Now that, I believe, is to be taken seriously and literally that, that in the end times there's going to be a great gathering in of Jewish people. It's not right now, is it? There are still a few, the remnant we would call them, some of you have Jewish friends who are saved out in our church plant in Utah. One of the two pastors there is David Bernstein, a faithful Jewish brother who has been born again. And he weeps and cries over his homeland. And he looks forward to the fulfillment of Romans 11 in a way that most of us can't. But here is what Jesus is saying. The invitation is there. And so I would say to you here today, whether you're Jew or Gentile, know this, you have to come through the same small gate and narrow path that anyone does to be saved. That is through the person and work of Jesus. That's why Paul said to the Greeks, that's most of us Gentiles, it's foolishness. So many Greek people viewed the simple gospel that God left the glories of heaven and died for sinners and offers them forgiveness and fellowship with them, nonsensical. But he says to the Jews, it was a stumbling block. They kept tripping over the fact that they had to be forgiven just like a Gentile does. But that's the truth of the gospel. And Jesus was persecuted and ultimately died for it. But he faced that intimidation and ultimately his death with boldness. And if we are to face intimidation in a Christ-like way today, in a world that is increasingly hostile to us and to the church, we must do so with boldness, but also with compassion. Jesus' boldness was seasoned with compassion. He didn't take any joy in the lostness that he saw all around. In fact, he was brokenhearted over it. And friends, if you're not brokenhearted over the sinfulness in our city, in our culture, you're not being Christ-like. Charles Spurgeon said, no one ought to be ever be able to preach about hell without a tear in his eye. That's true. And so may the Lord today make us like Jesus, bold in our confession, compassion in our heart, and truth on our lips for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this word. And I thank you that even though you warned us that we would face the same treatment that you did, that you have given us some great gifts. You have given us 
the full canon of Scripture, that in its pages is revealed everything you want us to know about yourself. You've given us the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit who will not abandon us. In fact, who will give us the words to say in our hour of persecution. And Father, you've given us a wonderful local church to support us and to encourage us even in the midst of intimidation. And so Lord, may we be bold like Jesus was, even under threat of arrest if that comes here. May we say with Peter and John, do what you must, but we cannot help but tell what we have seen and heard. May Jesus ever and always be on our lips in every conversation we have. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.